Charles brought us a really beautiful look at what love does for us or can do for us and has done for us when he did his talk around the table. And our reading today will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. And we're going to continue to look at love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Good morning, everyone. Well, I enjoyed Charles' Charles' talk around the table, and you would think after this lesson that you're going to hear, you're going to think we probably talked before we got together for worship, but actually we didn't. He, He pointed things out in the table talk that I'm going to touch on today. So it's interesting how sometimes, even though we don't talk, God's providence, things work out that we're all talking about the same thing. So yes, my wife is here from from St. John, and we're going to be here till Tuesday. So if you get a chance, if you could come and say hi to her after worship service, after Bible study class, would be nice. So how is everyone doing this morning? I hope you're doing well. We're going to be talking about love today, the love of God. And so I thought I'd start off by looking at some words used for love in the ancient Greek world. And we always talk about the same four words. We always talk about eros, storge, we talk about agape, and we talk about philia. But there are more than that. Those are just the four that we're used to hearing about. And I think, if I'm correct, C.S. Lewis wrote about those specific four. But there are more than that, and we're going to look at a few other ones on top of that, just briefly, though, in in passing. So let's start off with the first one, which is eros. Eros, this word refers to physical, passionate love. Though this word was used in ancient times, it's not found in Scripture. You're not going to find it in the Bible. It's not found there. Uh, Eros was thought of as pure emotion without the balance of logic. So pure emotion without the balance of logic, a form of madness kind of love. So love at first sight would be a good way of describing this Greek word. Um, ancient writers, when they describe this word, uh, they usually use the example of the, the mythological, supposedly God, uh, demigod, Cupid, when he casts the arrow and he hits somebody in the butt, and oh, they just fall in love. Well, this word kind of is describing that, arrows. The next one is philia, or philia. And phileo, phileo. So let me start with phileo first. Phileo is actually the verb. Philia is the noun. So phileo, to love or to have affection for. And a good example of this is John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, which says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And so, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. So, we see that's the word here, phileo. And so, to love or to have affection for. The, love, the world would have affection for you. 
And so that's the idea. And so the other one is the noun philia. And so, and philia is often thought to be associated with brotherly love. You know, we always think of Philadelphia. We think the city of brotherly love, and that usually comes to mind. Well, Philadelphia is a compound word. It's two Greek words that are put together. So it's philia and adelphos. Adelphos is the Greek word for brother. And so, brotherly love. Philia is love, so brotherly love. But when adelphos is not added, and you have philia by itself, it means love between friends. Friendship love. That's what philia is. It's friendship love. And so, it's translated that way in James chapter 4, verse 4. In James chapter 4, verse 4. And so what we have here, yes, so Philadelphia, you can find that word in Revelation 3, 7. So, yeah, I have that there just as a reference. But the, yep, so Adelphos brother there, so we have it. And so James chapter 4, verse 4, says this. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So that word there, you know that friendship with the world. And so, philia. Friendship, uh, love between friends. That's what philia means. And so anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So we're to be morally upright people. We're not, we're not to be like the world. We're to be different than the world. The next word we have is storge. And so this type of love signifies a, a natural affection for one another. And it's used to describe relationships within the family. Relationships within the family. And so... Uh, it appears occasionally in ancient times, but usually it only appears in compound form. Compound form means it's usually joined with another word. It makes a new word. And so, for example, Romans chapter 12, verse 10, has philostorgos, loving dearly or mutual love or devoted love. Take a look. I'll just quickly read that. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. This is what it says. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. So be devoted. The way it's translated in the NIV, be devoted. That's the kind of love that storge is here. It's a compound word, philostorge. Between friends, friendship. Be devoted to one another. Friendship kind of love between one another. And then we have this word here, philautos. You probably haven't heard of this one. Philautos. Notice what it says. This kind of love is selfish love, loving oneself. It kind of sounds funny, doesn't it? But again, that's a compound word. It is philia and autos. Philia, we talked about that. It's love. And autos means self. So it's a love for yourself. It really is. It's literally a love for yourself. It's a selfish love. This kind of love is a selfish love, loving oneself. An example of that is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, which says this. People will be lovers of themselves. I guess that's pretty self-explanatory. Selfish love. People will be lovers of themselves. So that part there where it says lovers of themselves, that's this word that's being used here. Philautos. Philautos. And so there are three other Greek words that describe love, but I'm not going to go into great detail about them because I don't want to spend the whole lesson, the whole sermon talking about ancient Greek words for love. But 
there are other words such as ludus, which is playful love. There is mania, which is obsessive love. Person wants to love and be loved to find a sense of self-value. You think of maniac, maniacal, you know, self, you know, obsessive love. And then there's pragma, pragma, which is an enduring love, the kind of love you find in married couples who have been married for a very long time. And so pragma love. But I want to concentrate more specifically on the next two Greek words for this lesson. These two Greek words about love, which is agape and agapao. But we'll start with agape. I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with that word. I'm sure a lot of us have done our studies on that word. It's translated as love. It is the noun. The agapao is the verb to love. And so agape uh, is also used to refer to love feasts in ancient times. And so this word appears at least 30 times just in the writings of the Apostle John. A lot of people over the years have tried to define this word and do justice to it, what agape means. I'm not going to try to define it, but I'll let God's word do that, according to what we heard from our reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Read about love there. You'll see what love is. That's kind of agape love we're talking about. But instead, I'd like to look at the other word, the agapao, the verb, and it's translated to love. It describes the action of loving. Well, this word can be found many times in the New Testament. One Greek scholar by the name of Warren C. Trenchard said this about agapao. He says it means, I love, I cherish, I show love to, and I long for. So I want you to remember those definitions as we go through the lesson, because I'm going to refer to that often. So those, take a look, those definitions, I love. Specifically, I cherish, I show love to, I long for. And so, it's interesting, the table talk, John 3.16. Take a look at John 3.16 now, with those definitions in mind. For God so loved the world. So, look at the definition. So, God, God so cherished the world. God showed love to the world. God longed for the world. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We know this verse quite well. But when we think of some of those other definitions, cherish, you know, long for, you know, it's interesting. So it's an often quoted verse from the Bible. Uh, As I mentioned, remember the definitions that we pointed out. But I want to also point out something else, too. Something that people are unaware of when they look at that verse. That little word, so, S-O, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That word is an adverb of manner instead of an adverb of quantity. What that means is that that verse is saying that God loved the world in such a way. We always read that verse thinking that it's saying that God loved the world so much. But it's saying that God loved the world in such a way. He loved it in such a way that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for us. Now, if we add the definitions we heard a moment ago... That's what it says. For God loved or cherished or longed for or showed love to the world in such a way that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It was God's love to give. To look at this verse and think that it was saying God loved the world so much is not wrong either, because that's kind of what it's saying. That's the thought. God loved the world so much and in such a way that he sent Jesus to die for us. 
So listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. The reason my father loves me, think about the definitions. The reason my father loves me, that's agapao there, that verb, is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from the father, from my father. And so the reason my father loves me, the reason my father cherishes me, the reason my father shows love to me, longs for me, is because I lay down my life only to take it up again. And so he received this commandment from the father. Jesus may have been commanded and sent by the father to die on the cross, but he still had the free will and he chose to obey and die for the world. He chose to. Can you imagine if you were told, I want you to go die for all these people? And, and you have the choice. You could choose to obey or not. You could say, oh, I'm not going to do that. But he chose to do it. He chose to please his father and he chose to just go do it. And that's, <coughs> that's, that's Jesus our Lord that we follow and we serve. Jesus had a choice. He wanted to die on the cross. God loved the world in such a way that he was not willing to give up on us. He was not willing to leave us in our sins with no hope for redemption. That's the God that we follow. That's the God we love and serve. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, For God demonstrates his own love, his own love, agape, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you might think, okay, why is he talking about Christ's death on the cross? Why is he getting into this? When the title of the lesson is God's love for his church. Well, the reason I bring up the death of Jesus is because this is directly connected to the love God had for his church. Even though the church only came into existence shortly after Christ's death on the cross. Subsequent burial and resurrection. I want you to take a look at a couple of verses and then I'll, I'll talk about them. Ephesians 5, that's... Our text for today, Ephesians chapter 5. We're looking at verses 25 to 27. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Husbands love, see, we see this word again, love, agapao. Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, holy and blameless. It is impossible to separate God's love for the church from the event of Christ's death on the cross. The two are intertwined. They're joined together. That's how God has shown his love to us. By sending his son to die for us. His love for the church. The church is his people. It is us. The body of Christ. And so that's how God has chosen to show his love. By sending his son to die. They're connected together. Love was the motivation for his death. That deep longing for us. Cherishing us. Showing love to us. By dying for us. We think of those definitions. So it's hard for us sometimes to grasp this kind of love because we can imagine suffering horribly, humiliatingly, a death for someone else like Jesus did. The way that he went through it, what he went through for us, is amazing. And if you picture it and you think about going through that for someone else, would you do it, you know? You you have to ask yourself, would I? 
Would I be strong enough to do it? But Jesus did, and he did that for everyone. He did it for the whole world, for those who would be willing to come to him. And so God loved the world in such a way that Jesus was sent to die for us. His great love does not just begin and end at the cross. God continues to show us love by taking care of us. It doesn't end there. It continues. And where we read a minute ago in Ephesians chapter 5, if you continue past verse 25 to 27, listen to what it says, verses 28 to 30. It continues on, and it says, In this same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So that love continues to pour over the church. He doesn't just die for the church. He cares for the church. He feeds the church. Jesus is still always at work. He is there for us, taking care of us. And so this is the kind of love God has for us, his church. Love is the motivation behind God creating us. Love is the motivation behind God the Son, our Lord Jesus, dying for us on the cross. And love is the motivation that drives Jesus to care for us and feed us with spiritual food. He continues to feed us and providentially take care of us. So in light of such great love, how should we respond? In light of that love, the kind of love that was shown, that extreme love, how should we respond? How should we behave as Christians, as God's people? Well, we are to show that same kind of sacrificial love to each other. It should be a love, as we mentioned, that is patient and kind. It should be not proud or arrogant. It should not be envious or rude. It should not be self-seeking. We should have that kind of love for each other. We should not be easily angered. And we should not keep any record of wrongs. Can you imagine not keeping a record of wrong about anybody? Somebody hurts you, you just forget it. You don't, you don't remember it. You don't keep track of it. Well, another translation says, not keep any record of wrongs, but other translations say, thinketh no evil. Thinketh no evil, instead of keep a record of wrongs. So, thinketh no evil. Love thinketh no evil about someone. So, when you look at someone, do you think something evil about them? Well, scriptures tell us we shouldn't. Think it no evil about somebody. Love should make us want to protect one another. Make us want to trust each other and always have hope. So think about it. Does your love motivate you to want to protect others here in the church? Does your love motivate you to want to trust the way that you should, the way that God wants us to, to trust each other, a deep trust, and to always have hope? Love should always persevere or endure, as other translations say. This is the kind of love we're told to have for each other. And it doesn't mean it's going to be difficult. We have to work at it. We have to do it. A while ago, we read John 3.16. Take a look now at 1 John 3.16. And I'm always amazed at the parallelism here. We think of of John 3.16. Think of what John 3.16 says. And look at 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So how should we behave as Christians? We should be willing to do this. We should be willing to lay down our lives for each other. As I mentioned a moment ago, we should have a sacrificial love for one another. And then verse 17 and 18 in that same text, 
If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. In light of God's love and Christ's sacrifice for us, his church, we are to love our brothers and sisters by actions, not just by words. Yeah, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. It should be by actions, by what we do. You know, the text tells us we see someone in need and we say, oh, you know, yeah, hopefully everything works out for you and we have no pity. Well, that doesn't work, does it? And so action. And I've, said, I've used this in a, in a previous lesson in the past. I could tell my wife I love her. But what really tells her that I love her is my actions. It's the things that I do that tells her that I love her. And so that's the way it should be with us. Loving each other as members of the one body. By our actions. It is the same, to be the same with us, God's people. In light of God's love for the church, and this shown by action. Think about it. God showed his love for us by action, by sending his son to die for us. It wasn't just, I love you. I'm sending my son to die for you. That's, I'm willing to show you that I love you. We are to show our love for one another by our actions. We have seen how we are to show our love to one another. But how do we show our love to God? Think about God, all-powerful God, who doesn't need anything from us. How do we show our love to God? What could we possibly do to show our love to God and for God? Well, John chapter 14, verse 15. John chapter 14, verse 15 says this. If you love me, you will obey what I command. How do we show our love to God? By obeying him. Verse 21 to 24 in that same text. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. And so we show, show our love to God by obeying God, by wanting to please him, by wanting to do his will. And that's what God wants from us. We are also expected to love others, not just those in the church, but also those who are out there. When we're out there in the world, we're not here in the building on Sunday or Wednesday or some kind of event. We're to love people who are out in the world. And so we are even told in Scripture to love our enemies. Now, that's a hard one, isn't it? Love your enemies. You know, that's something that we tell ourselves, well, I don't want to, but we have to. God expects it of us. He expects us to be just flowing with love. You think of the, the words and the, the descriptions that we see in 1 Corinthians 13 of what love should look like. And that's what God wants from us. When Jesus was approached by the Pharisees and asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He said in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, Love, notice the words love, notice, think of the definitions of love that we looked at a while ago. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Remember the definitions we had? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Cherish the Lord your God with all your heart. Show love to the Lord with all your heart. 
Long for the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your body, all your spirit, etc. And your neighbor as well. How will, you, how will you show your love to God today? It should begin with coming to Christ and responding to the gospel. That's where it begins. To responding to that love that God has shown to us. To re- respond to that gospel through baptism. And I hope you're thinking about that. And if you haven't done that yet. Maybe you need more answers before you're willing to take that step. Maybe you're at a point where you say, okay, I know what I need to do. I know I need to be united in Christ, forgiven of my sins through the waters of baptism, but I'm not sure. I have questions. Maybe you're at that point. If so, why not come and see me or one of the elders or someone here in the congregation that you think might be able to answer those questions for you, to give you those answers? If so, why not do that? Perhaps you're ready. Perhaps you want to, you want to do that today. And if so, I would encourage you to come forward when we sing our invitation song. Last week, I gave a challenge to those who are already in Christ. For those of you who are part of the body, who are dearly loved by the Lord. And I gave you a challenge last week, and I give you that challenge again today. But I've worded it slightly different, but it's the same message. And here's the challenge. Christ died for you. Are you willing to now live for him? That's your challenge. As members of the body, as Christians, are you willing to now live For him, in light of the fact that he died for you. Again, if you are here today, if you have not responded to the gospel, won't you do that at this time as we sing our invitation song? Let's stand as we sing our last song in the morning. How I love the great Redeemer, who is doing so much for me.